This is the State of Inclusion podcast, where we explore topics at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and community. In each episode, we meet people who are changing their communities for the better, and we discover actions that each of us can take to improve our own communities. I'm Amy Sanders. Welcome. Today, we are happy to welcome Joel Dock. Joel is a planning coordinator for Louisville, Kentucky's Metro Planning and Design Services, and he's recently taken on the role of coordinator for their land development code reform. Welcome, Joel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for uh, having me on the on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. I used a few terms in there that not all of our listeners may be familiar with about what your job is and what you do. And so can you tell us just some, a little bit about what some of those terms mean and what you do, what it means to be a planning coordinator, what we're talking about when we're talking about zoning and land development code? Oh, yeah, of course. Zoning is an extremely complex issue and touches on many facets of our everyday life that we don't normally think of. So, you know, zoning is... Zoning is a power granted to the cities from the state that allows the cities to create and group land areas into designations called zoning districts. And then from those zoning districts, we create a set of planners, create a set of rules and regulations. Here locally, we put those rules and regulations in what's called the land development code. And that land development code then breaks down how each one of those zoning districts or groups of land uses can can be used and how property within those districts can be designed. So in the state of Kentucky, we also have to have what's called a comprehensive land use plan. And our comprehensive land use plan that was recently updated in 2018 is called Plan 2040. And Plan 2040 is our city's master land use plan for guiding growth and development in the future. And what's really fantastic about Plan 2040 is that it has a housing equity focus element that hadn't been used before that focuses on diversifying our housing stock, different types of housing, and really getting housing choice at the forefront of our our land use decisions. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think that's really interesting about about our comprehensive plan. And so our comprehensive plan uh, guides where those districts are. And then the land development code says how those districts can and cannot be used. So I'm glad you brought up the work that you've done around equity, because that's how I found out about you and what led me to talk with you. So one of the things I'd just like to ask you straight up is how can a city's legacy built environment and their current zoning and land use regulations, how can that impact equity in a community? Yeah, so what what we've found through through our research efforts on the land development code reform is is, you know, not something that's particularly unique to Louisville and 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 is spread across the nation and cities, you know, internationally, is that The land development code and zoning codes have been used to intentionally separate people and places. And much of of that early intention, we have found evidence of a racial racial roots and systematic racism codified within our zoning policies. So as we move forward and we take out 
that language, um, racial covenants get disbarred, you know, redlining folds. We still have this mechanism of zoning that perpetuates a lot of these initial ideas of segregation and separation of both people and places. So without looking at our codes now, they may not say that these are intended to separate people from each other, but the lasting consequences of that initial historical intent still remains, specifically in our single family zoning districts. Yeah, so um, Richard Rothstein, who wrote The Color of Law, I heard him speak, and one of the things he said is that already there's enough disparity in income and that African-Americans have 60% of incomes of whites, but they have 5% of the wealth of whites. And he attributes that very specifically to what he considers unconstitutional government housing policies. And so I think it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about how we think a lot about federal housing policy, but you just talked about as well how local policies can perpetuate that or how there can still be vestiges of that in our existing zoning and housing policies that can affect the environment that we, our legacy built environment, but also the environment that we are building. So I guess one obvious question then is, how do you use the work that you do to dismantle that and to address some of these equity issues? Yeah, so I like that you bring up Richard Rothstein, and I like that you bring up federal housing policy. There's actually, you know, Richard Rothstein in an interview with with Terry Gross on on uh, Fresh Air talks about, and we have this uh, this interview in our story map confronting racism in city planning and zoning. And there's an interview with Terry Gross, and she asked him why he wrote, he wrote Color of Law. And he says in 2007 there were there were court cases in Seattle and in Louisville regarding the school system and and school school policies and school assignment policies is what it is. And I'm not an expert on that, but I'll tell you what Richard Rothstein said. He said in both the majority opinion and dissent, the justices stated that the racial patterns of segregation that existed in both Seattle and in Louisville were nothing more than, you know, they were self-segregating cities. And he said, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot of federal housing policy. And so what we see from that point and moving forward is we see a lot of work on federal housing policy. And there's been a huge amount of work done at the local level on redlining and starting those conversations. There was a 20-year action plan for Fort Fair Housing back in 2013 that outlined a lot of the issues that we continue to talk about. So you know, what we saw is there is a huge amount of information out there on these federal policies, these federal housing programs. How could, how do we tie back in the local level problem of zoning and put all those things together to say, look, we have to care about zoning. Zoning is determining where you can and cannot live and where you can and cannot choose to live. And so we have to look at zoning. And if we don't look at zoning, I don't think we'll be able to solve and move forward with fully addressing what each city needs to provide housing to its community. So let's get back to the project that you worked on, because I think it's so interesting to share that with the audience. So you guys, I guess I'll just let you tell us what you're doing in Louisville to address this and what your project that you worked on was all about. 
Yeah. So equity has been, you know, at the minds, at the, at the front of the minds of planners, I think for longer than planners are given credit for, I believe. And single family zoning and minimum lot size has been something that has always been a concern of mine as a planner and what it does to separate communities by what type of home they live in or what type of home they can afford or neighborhood they can live in. So that's always kind of been, you know, at the front of, I think, more planners' minds um, than people will know. When Plan 2040 was adopted, we knew within Plan 2040 that we needed an equity component. We needed to really be intentional about what we were doing and saying locally. And so we added that housing element. You know, around the same time, we also had in 2019, uh, planning and design staff put together an advancing equity report where we highlighted some of these local issues. We, lo- we highlighted redlining, we highlighted racial covenants, and, and we actually got into deed restrictions, modern day deed restrictions that can essentially create the intended desired occupant for a neighborhood through socioeconomic characteristics. And then we had a diagnosis of our land development code done by Optico's uh, design firm out of Berkeley, and that was in uh, 2019 as well. And and they just said, look, your your zoning code is is too complex. You've got too much single family zoning. It's extremely limiting. You can't deliver housing choice. As we're doing all of this, we have the racial justice and social justice movements really hitting home locally uh, with the death of Breonna Taylor. And as planners, you know, we needed a manner in which to channel our own frustrations with our own profession and our own frustrations with the fact that, you know, we really wanted to dig into the initial intent behind zoning. And we really wanted to expose that on a local level because we knew there's really not much path forward without fully acknowledging what a city has been responsible for and done leading up to this point. And much of, you know, the, the, the racial justice movement is, and, and as planners, much of that is just, a, just acknowledging and confronting head on with intention what we wanted to set out to do. And so that's, that's where we started from. And this story map that we put together, Confronting Racism in City Planning, is the culmination of, of that effort to identify locally, our history, and our racially designed city through intent, through the intention of city policy, specifically zoning and land use. And it became very clear in our research and the work that we published what was done. So this is an important point, and I want to visit this story map that you did. So one of the things that you did, and I was quite impressed by it, is you looked back at the specific history of your community, not just the general history that exists across the country or some of the broader policies, but the specific ways that your community had evolved over time and the policies that had been put in place. And that's so important because our listeners, everybody's community is different and their history can be different, even though we share common elements of federal policy and perhaps even common norms and behaviors, our specific local history can be different. And I was so impressed that you took the time and effort to revisit that history and to 
And not just to revisit yourself, but to do it in a way that you could share that with the community. So talk to me a little bit about how you used that then within the community. You, you said something really, really significant. You said that we looked specifically at the local level, what, what we had done. And I think what's really cool about our story map is that while we took a, a specific local look, I think what we did also translates and relates to other cities around the country. And so when we looked back historically at our land use policies, we, we see the origins of these policies begin in with the racial segregation ordinances that took off across the South, beginning with Baltimore in 1910. And then a number of other cities throughout the, the South and the West took on these policies. Louisville just happens to be one of them. In 1914, we enacted a racial segregation ordinance that said a block occupied by majority white could not rent, lease, sell a house on that block to uh, a person of color. And vice versa. So it worked It worked the other way against whites. That law was challenged up to the Supreme Court, and Louisville became the landmark case, Buchanan v. Worley, in 1917. But this isn't something that was particularly unique to Louisville. As we move forward to 1931 and the adoption of the Comprehensive Plan, we recognize that in 1926, the Euclid decision, Euclid v. Ambler, came out that recognized the constitutionality of zoning across the United States. So then around this same time period, you have a rush of cities to enact zoning regulations. And so they they go out there and they find a a, a planner like Louisville did. They find Harlan Bartholomew to write and produce these plans. And what we've evidenced in our story map is that the intent behind these plans and the narrative and the terms used were extremely racially motivated when you look back at how these terms were used by these individuals like Bartholomew in other contexts, like speaking to the National Association of Real Estate Boards in Toronto, Canada. Or when you're looking at certain studies that are done, for instance, you know, the 1932 study, the Negro housing problem in Louisville, when Harlan Bartholomew just says, if Black people had a desire for better accommodations, the slums would eliminate themselves. So we had all of these things written in there that were also specific to Louisville, but this was happening all around the country. And so how we communicated this was through the story map and making sure that all of the information that we sourced, that we cited, was was hyperlinked and sourced. And so when we mentioned the, the racial segregation ordinance beginning with Baltimore in 1910, right where it says Baltimore in 1910, you can click on that and go to the study in Baltimore. You know, when we're looking at housing exclusion and we're talking about uh, the 1958 comprehensive plan and in that 1958 comprehensive plan, it says, look to the country club district of Kansas City, Missouri. Well, we've got a link to the story from the public library in, in Kansas City, Missouri that talks about the country club district. And so the story map was this great way to put out a collection of information and to share with people what we know and what then they can take back to their cities and use our sources and use our information to then localize it for their own approach. We spoke to a group out of Tampa, Florida, I think the city of Hillsboro, who caught wind of our work and produced their own confronting racism in 
the city of Hillsborough document where they looked back at the original planner and they looked back at how the code was written based on that, that narrative. And they, they took it up to about the same timeline um, that we did up until about racial covenants and deed restrictions when we start seeing the land use language becoming less facially discriminatory and they start and and planners start using other policies to keep people out of areas like parking requirements. So there's a whole bunch of information in that that I want to unpack and a lot of facets of that that I want to talk through. So one you've talked about the ability for other communities to use the work that you've done as a kind of a benchmark or a reference or a template, if you will, for the kind of analysis that they could do of their own community. And that is really important. So we'll include a link to your story map and to the information that you have developed and built so that other communities can have a look at that. But you talked about several other things, and I want to let it lead into our next discussion. One is that you used it as a tool to educate and inform your community on this history and this legacy that you guys have and that we all have in our communities about this built environment and our policies and and guidelines. So I want to ask you two questions about that. One is, did people understand this already or was this news to folks in your community? That's a really interesting question. Do people know about this? I think that as a white male planner, I don't need to go out and tell Black people that they've been discriminated against historically. But I do have a lot of information to share. And I have a lot of information, and the story map has a lot of information to share with everyone, whether they know information or not. And it's not it's not good information to have thinking about all of the time. You know, this is a this is a document that is goes very deep into our history, into content that not everyone fully understands and not everyone is fully okay with accepting as something that occurred. But if we can put the information out there and have the support of the mayor's administration and Metro Council to to put this information, to share this information with the public, for them to use, for the public to comment on. I mean, that's an, that's an excellent resource for, for, for anybody to have. You know, we do, we've done, um, I've done some talks, you know, at the University of Louisville. And, you know, in one of the talks, an individual asked, and, and she lived in, you know, one of our more affluent communities. And she asked, you know, what can she do to convince her parents and her neighbors that something needs to be done different in the future with with residential communities and with people and and we have to you know there has to be like a cultural shift in how we think about how we live and you know if if the story map or my conversations can get people thinking about that but then also have some information to use as they have those conversations with people that's a win for, for, for myself, for the department, and for the city as a whole. So conversations are a big step, and it's very important for us to confront our history and acknowledge what has happened and for us to have a shared view of that. But it's important that we actually take action, as you're already talking about. So maybe you can spend a little time 
telling us about how this historical perspective and all the information that you gathered inspired your work in the project that you did and in how you're moving forward in Louisville. Tell us about some of the things that you guys are putting in place. Having this background and this framework, we knew, you know, if we we put this out and we publish this information and this history, you know, we need to be very intentional about what we do and, and how we do it and who we speak to. And, and, and so there's been a change, I think, you know, within our department, you know, of, of intentionality. And, and now we have to, we have to do everything and we have to think intentionally about consequences. We have to use the racial equity toolkit that we used for our ADU or accessory dwelling unit regulation. So what came out of this first round of land development code reform were options for housing choice. So accessory dwelling unit. So an accessory dwelling unit is a a granny flat, a mother-in-law suite, a carriage house. You know, it's a garage conversion in your backyard, a second story on a garage. Maybe it's a basement apartment or an attic apartment. That was something that you previously had to ask for special permission to do and go through a rigorous public hearing process. You know, not only invest money in the application, but go through a process that's a risk that you could be denied just to provide housing choice, invisible density almost. We're really proud that the accessory dwelling units ordinance was passed and you can now do accessory dwelling units um, with some special standards in, in all the single family residential districts. We also did something with our notification requirements. And so up until July of this year, when somebody goes to rezone a property or develop a piece of property and a public hearing is required, you were only required to notify owners and you weren't required to notify anybody else. And so if you lived in an apartment next door or you lived in a home and rented the home next door, you will have you would have never gotten notice of development occurring near you. So the ordinance was passed that requires that now notification go to all current residents. So for multifamily complexes with 100 units, every single one of those units is getting a notification of development. This puts renters and homeowners on, you know, as far as awareness of development applications, puts them on a level playing field to be involved and to have notice of events in their area. You know, we also took away some regulatory barriers like floor area ratio. Floor area ratio can prevent an accessory dwelling unit. It can also prevent you from remaining in your home because you're restricted on maybe expanding. You want to renovate the basement and you had, you just had another kid. You've got three already. You want to renovate the basement. And to do that, it's finished floor area, but your floor area is maxed out on your first and second floors. And we say, too bad, sorry for your family. I hope you find housing elsewhere or you rezone the property. So we took away the FAR standard. So we no longer have this unnecessary regulatory hurdle preventing people from renovating their homes or having an accessory dwelling. You know, we also reduced the front setback in our residential districts. Our front setback was 30 feet. We required you to have 30 feet of yard that requires you to maintain 30 feet of yard. Developers delay, you know, uh, a 15 by 20 foot pad of concrete. So we took that down to 15 feet. And so now homes can be closer to roads. And then that, re- that's, it's a, it's a really small thing, 
But when you add it together with a lot of other policies, these little small things start making huge differences in how we envision the community developing in the future. And so there's are five and urban agriculture. So we formalized, we formalized urban agriculture as a permitted use on any lot in Louisville. You know, previously agriculture had to take place on a five acre lot. Now you can do urban agriculture on vacant residential lots. So that was a, a big win for, for local food economy, food deserts, and, you know, sustainable production of your own, your own produce. So those were six actionable items that, that we did immediately uh, with the land development code reform. And we've got another 40 on our website of items that we'll be pursuing over the next several years. I don't know that there's an end to this. I think we're going to just keep working at it. So I like the six that you picked as examples. And the reason I like them is because they're examples of different kinds of things. The first one was an example of choice and perhaps affordability when you talk about accessory uh, dwelling units and increasing your density. The second one put people on even footing. So it made information more equitable to the community. The one about the floor area ratio, it removed something that was pretty unnecessary. So that had been layered in over time and that you guys have found was unnecessary and inhibited that equity that you wanted to achieve. And then the urban agriculture offered some opportunity for people to overcome some barriers and things that they faced every day in their community. And I think that those were good examples because what it pointed out is sometimes it's not a single big change that makes the difference. And we did not get to these policies that are inequitable with a single big change. We did it by layering on over and over and over again inequitable choices and inequitable decisions. And so we will need to dismantle it in a similar fashion, one by one by one, sometimes things that on their face don't even look inequitable. And people may not think create equity issues, but if you look at it with an equity lens, you realize it creates disparities. So those are really good examples. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with with what you said there. And, and you know, I think one of the things that, that I might add to that is in 1931, all of a sudden there's no zoning and then there's zoning. And then now 100 years or 90 years removed from that, we have a different idea of what zoning is and what it's used for. And I think people are removed from this original intent and the underpinnings of what went into the initially codified policies that were very exclusionary. And then, yes, over time, zoning codes were changed and we went from 10 districts to now 30-something districts. But the initial ideas of separation of people and places and uses still remains, but we think about it, I think, differently than, than we used to. And then as planners, we're now taking an extreme and intentional look at equity in all of these policies as we start to amend things and doing it in a way that is approachable. I think policy number 50, recommendation 50 out there in our long term, you know, our big whale of a policy is inclusionary zoning. What can we do to require or incentivize as you develop to mandate you provide affordable housing? 
that's a hard conversation to have, but we'll have it. I think that this brings up an, another facet of this. So first, I want to applaud you for the work that you've been doing and that Louisville has done. I know you, it isn't something you've done by yourself. You've had a lot of partners in this in the community, and I know it hasn't been easy. So taking on, just as you described, these policies that can be sensitive, can change how people perceive the properties that they've invested in or own and where they live and they feel can have an effect, positive or negative, on that. It's not easy. We know this work is hard. So I want to ask you with the having the benefit of time of having gone through this and, and done so much work on this already, if communities wanted to tackle this, what would you recommend as a way for them to start or three or four things that they should think about doing? Just start, just do it. The benefit of, of our planning staff is that our director creates such a safe environment for planners to express their real opinions and then us as planners to work on those ideas without a director leading and championing this effort and without great staff members, you know, I can't thank folks like Rachel Mandel and Naya Holt who started this with me, you know, Naya going all the way back to the advancing equity report, uh, Rachel Mandel taking over when Naya Holt left and the many other planners that worked on it. I mean, you just, you need to be motivated to do it and you have to have a passion to do it. I wouldn't suggest any city take this on if you're not willing to take it on and confront it wholehearted and with and with real intent to to do it. I think you just have to start. If there's a champion in your council or legislative body or an administrator that they can get behind it and make that push to get it over the to get it over the edge, that's a good place to start as well. But I think you know, most importantly, I think just if you're passionate about ensuring that communities are equitable in the future and as planners that we act with intent to reduce barriers to equity, you just need to start the work. So just start and just do it. What has been the most difficult part of this work for you and for Louisville? Maybe it's not the same thing. Maybe it's something difficult for you and then something difficult for Louisville, but maybe it's the same. That's a really tough question. What has been the most difficult? I mean, I think from on a very personal level, the most difficult or professional level, the most difficult thing has just been time and resources allocated towards working on this project. I mean, this isn't a project we went out and hired a consultant to do. This is a project that planners within the office were passionate about and dedicated to, and we were willing to work extra hard and outside of our normal responsibilities to work on this. And I think that really shows in the work that we do. We're not just producing work. We are doing something that we are invested in. We are in this till the end, I think, and 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 we're going to keep working at equity. I mean, the challenges that we face are, are, are not particularly unique. I mean, trust in government, lack of trust in government is a big thing. We have to just keep showing up in communities that have been marginalized, in communities that have been disenfranchised from the planning process, communities of color, low-income neighborhoods, uh, minority neighborhoods, immigrant communities. We just have to keep showing up and keep asking for input and keep sharing what we know. I think it's important, and, and I find this to be important in some of the talks that I do from time to time on this work, 
is that it's important for us not to just go tell people things. We have to really be genuine about sharing what we know. And I think, I think that's what we've done a, a, a good job of so far, but we, we need to get better and we need to start really getting to know people and getting to know what they need and sharing what we know and putting that all together. I think the biggest challenge is just, I think, yeah, I think it's trust. Yeah. So there's so many other things I could ask you about, but I think I'm going to leave it with these last two points because I do believe that today, as much as ever, there is an issue of lack of trust in government. And sometimes that is better locally, but not always. And so working to rebuild that trust, having honest conversations, sharing information, confronting our history and acknowledging that honestly, that goes a long way towards rebuilding that trust. And then you are exactly the kind of conversation I love to have on the State of Inclusion podcast, which is to talk to people and understand what people are doing who are passionate about seeing equity improve in their community, who every day wake up with their job or their volunteer work or their engagement in the community in finding a way to move it forward in lots of different small and big ways to make their community more equitable. So I think I'll just leave it with those two things because that's a great way to end this. So thank you, Joel, for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate you talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. That was a great conversation with Joel Doc. We learned so many important things from that conversation, but in particular, we took time to talk about what it means to own your own community's history and what that might look like. They did it through a project of creating a story map, a powerful way for them to look back at their city's planning process and to own the history and the harm that was done from that, but then to use it to inspire action, to make their community more equitable and more inclusive. He also reminded us that sometimes it is not one big thing, but a series of many small things layered over time, one on top of another, that will help us change those systems, procedures, and policies. If you're impressed as I was by the work that's going on in Louisville, Kentucky, you might want to listen to an older episode where I interviewed Kathy Dykstra of the Family Scholar House the interview Making the Impossible Possible for Single Parents. It was just another example of how Louisville is working across their community to create opportunities and improve equity for everyone in their city. This has been the State of Inclusion podcast. Join us again next time. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best compliment for our work is your willingness to share these ideas with others. So leave us a review. We'd love your comments. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.